welcome to today's episode of the Clinical Care Options podcast series titled A Bold Panoramic Grasp of Tardive Dyskinesia. I'm Dr. Christoph Corell, Professor of Psychiatry and Molecular Medicine at the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell in New York, as well as Professor and Chair of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the Charité University Medicine in Berlin, in Germany. With me today to discuss some of the causes of tardive dyskinesia and how to deal with that is Dr. John Kane, Professor of Psychiatry and Molecular Medicine at the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell in New York. Welcome, John. Thanks very much. So let's get started and see how we can educate the audience and give them some value to take home when treating their patients. Let's begin with an exploration of the overall causes and risk factors for TD. What are the main drivers of TD in terms of treatment as well as patient-related risk factors? So the most common cause of tardive dyskinesia is uh, antipsychotic medication, formerly referred to as neuroleptics. We've been aware of tardive dyskinesia for many, many years, and it's been a challenge in the treatment of people with uh, psychotic disorders who benefit from antipsychotic medications. Fortunately, the the newer generation of medicines, referred to as second generation or atypical, are associated with a significantly lower risk of TD, but the the risk is not absent. So we really want to remind clinicians to examine their patients for TD. And as you implied in your question, there are, are other causes of TD. So whenever we have a new patient that we're starting on antipsychotic drugs, it's really important that we examine that individual to make sure they don't have pre-existing movements, either from some other cause, or in some cases they can occur spontaneously, particularly in people with schizophrenia. So it's really, I, I would say, very important to document the presence or absence of involuntary movements before we start someone on antipsychotic drugs. And then there are a range of other medicines that are also capable of causing abnormal involuntary movements. Medicines like metoclopramide or prochlorperazine or some antidepressants have been associated with abnormal involuntary movements. So levodopa, uh, anticonvulsants, phenobarbital, anticholinergic drugs, uh, in rare cases benzodiazepines such as alprazolam, uh, antihistamines, uh, stimulant drugs. So There are a variety of different medicines that have been uh, associated with with TD. Probably the metoclopramide is the one that is most frequently cited as a potential cause of TD. And the the risk there, I think uh, the estimates have varied enormously. I think my read of the literature is that the recent estimates are pretty low. It's always been difficult to get a good denominator on the use of metoclopramide, but it's certainly something to be aware of. I think patients and clinicians should, should understand that there is some risk associated with those medicines. And then in terms of risk factors, well, I think age is certainly the biggest risk factor. In some studies, female sex, particularly older females. In some of our work, we found that the occurrence of early extrapyramidal side effects, whether it's akinesia or akathisia, might also indicate increased risk. So I think guidance to the clinicians would be if you see someone who appears to be very vulnerable to uh, antipsychotic drug-induced Parkinsonian side effects, you want to keep a careful eye on that person. First, you want to make sure that the antipsychotic drugs are indicated, that the patient is receiving the lowest effective dose 
And then you want to make sure you're examining that patient at regular intervals. Not that you shouldn't do that with everyone, but you want to pay particular attention to those people who appear to be vulnerable to early occurring extrapyramidal side effects. Other risk factors, there's been some suggestion that concurrent diabetes might be a risk factor. Those people who smoke might have a higher incidence. But I think one of the critical factors uh, that we will learn more about over time is genetics, that there are patients who can have the exact same exposure to antipsychotic drugs in terms of duration and dosage. One will get TD and the other one won't. And it's, it's highly likely that there are some genetic vulnerabilities that we still don't fully understand. Thank you for this very comprehensive response and overview. So when you say neuromotor side effects are extrapyramidal, I think you're including both EPS in terms of Parkinsonian side effects and dystonia, but also akathisia, which has been implied and implicated in TD risk. And then the question about the anticholinergics, is that an independent risk factor, or do you think it's more like a proxy of clinically relevant EPS and we should not give anticholinergics because we're masking something that's ongoing in the brain that might prime the brain to develop tardive dyskinesia? Yeah, that's an important question. I think it is in some cases a proxy in that those people who develop EPS are going likely to receive anticholinergic medications, and it may make it appear that the anticholinergic is actually a causal factor in the TD. At the same time, I think we do not want to treat tardive dyskinesia with anticholinergic drugs. This is a likelihood that it'll make it worse. So that's something that clinicians need to keep in mind. Whether anticholinergic drugs are capable of producing a TD de novo, as it were, I think is an unanswered question. Right, and then I think cumulative dose and uh, lifetime exposure to antipsychotics, intermittent treatment when people become non-adherent, and also substance abuse have been additional risk factors that I think uh, our audience should be aware of. And so, for example, substance abuse and diabetes are potentially treatable and adjustable, and they should be always considered. And then the first-generation agents, as you mentioned, have a higher risk. So maybe there is not really a place anymore for those agents because of that risk? Or what's your opinion? Well, I certainly think if in those settings where people can afford the second-generation medications, that they would be preferable. But I understand there are some parts of the world where that's not always the case. And I guess I would rather see someone treated than go untreated. Uh, even if with a first-generation drug, I would just be very, very cautious to use the lowest possible dose and to, to really bend over backwards to make sure that the antipsychotic drug is truly indicated. We, sadly, we still see some patients receiving these medications when the indications are not as clear as we'd like. I'd like to just get back to a point that you made about intermittent treatment. There was a, a very interesting um, analysis done recently by some of our colleagues looking at about 8,000 patients and comparing the risk of TD on long-acting injectable drugs versus oral medication. And they found that the risk was lower with long-acting injectable drugs. And it's interesting because I think a lot of clinicians are hesitant to use long-acting drugs because they think, oh, they're going to cause more side effects. And particularly TD has been mentioned in the past as a possible risk with long-acting injectable drugs. But I think that study really helps to put to rest the notion that long-acting formulations increase the risk of TD. If anything, they decrease the risk. Yeah, that's a very important point because maybe it's the up and down in the blood level that is more relevant than the continued levels of blockade or modification of dopamine transmission. 
So let, let's move to a different topic. We've talked about the risk of TD on treatment, but there is also a risk when you actually take the treatment away. For example, you have someone not just in schizophrenia, but we're now treating people in bi with bipolar disorder or even unipolar depression in an approved indication, augmenting the antidepressant with an antipsychotic. And here you might actually be able to stop or want to stop the antipsychotic for other side effects or patient preference or even remission of the depression. But what about withdrawal emergent dyskinesia? Yeah, so, I mean, there are a couple of factors to consider here. One is that tardive dyskinesia can present in different ways. It can present while someone is actually taking medicine, but it also can present when, when the medication is either reduced in dosage or discontinued completely. And then whether that becomes true tardive dyskinesia and persists for more than three months, let's say, which has generally been our our threshold for considering a diagnosis of TD, uh, although some people would say a month is sufficient. So withdrawal dyskinesias, we usually expect to see withdrawal dyskinesia within four weeks of discontinuing the antipsychotic drug. It could occur later, but that's the typical, unless someone is on a long-acting injectable medicine, in which case it's going to be influenced by the kinetics of those medications. And now we have long-acting injectable drugs that are in the system for many, many months. So I think we, we haven't yet really determined what the period of so-called withdrawal dyskinesia might be for those drugs. I think that'll be an interesting question. But so generally four weeks, if someone's receiving a long-acting injectable drug every other week or once a month, then it could be eight or 12 weeks. I don't think we have really good estimates as to the incidence of withdrawal dyskinesia. And in, some, in, in many cases, the withdrawal dyskinesia will abate and will subside as will tardive dyskinesia in some cases. If we follow patients over time, in some cases, the tardive dyskinesia does improve considerably and even even uh, disappear. We obviously want to do whatever we can to try to increase the likelihood that the tardive dyskinesia is going to abate. But it's still, to me, it gets back to the, the most critical message I think we want to give to the listeners is prevention and early identification. That's when we have the best chance of reducing risk. Very good. Thank you. It seems to me that there are maybe two um, cases in terms of withdrawal dyskinesia. One is a true withdrawal dyskinesia where you might stop too quickly the dopamine blockade. You have upregulated postsynaptic dopamine receptors that are hit by endogenous dopamine, and you might increase the dose back and do it more slowly. But there's also the possibility that the ongoing antipsychotic treatment actually masked underlying TD. And then when you take the medication away, you're just unmasking it. And Putting back the medication and doing it more slowly wouldn't help. And that's certainly something that we will then need to look at and see whether there are other treatment options for withdrawal dyskinesia. Yeah, and that's a very important point that you raised about the speed with which one discontinues medicine. I think that in medicine in general, that we should not stop medications abruptly, that they should be discontinued gradually, in particular when we're talking about uh, antipsychotics or antidepressants or other medications that can have pretty profound effects on the central nervous system. And unless there's some urgency to stopping the medicine, we can do cross-titration if we're switching to a different drug. And I think that's something that the listeners should also keep in mind. Yeah, very important points. Now, you mentioned earlier something that is a spontaneous developing dyskinesia, not tardive dyskinesia related to medication. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how one would manage this type of emerging motor symptom? 
Yeah, this is something that we see particularly in elderly individuals who can develop what's what's referred to as spontaneous dyskinesias without exposure to some of the medicines that we've been talking about, but possibly associated with the aging process, with changes in, in dopamine function. I can't say that I've seen any good treatment studies for those individuals. That's not a situation where we would recommend the MAT2 drug, for example. For those patients with schizophrenia who appear to have abnormal involuntary movements before ever receiving an antipsychotic medication, there too, I can't say that I've seen treatment studies. And so I don't think we know a lot about the evolution or even the course of those movements. And the reality is that somebody with a a valid diagnosis of, of schizophrenia is is likely going to receive antipsychotic medication on top of the spontaneous dyskinesia, which is why I was emphasizing earlier that there is such a condition of abnormal involuntary movements. We should document that in the medical records so that it's clear that this person had pre-existing movements. There's a chance that they would get worse with the antipsychotic medication. Thank you for that. I mean, it's pretty clear based on what you're saying that most of our data on the evolution and also treatment of tardive dyskinesia is in schizophrenia because that has for many decades been the condition where antipsychotics were used. What about the non-antipsychotic related dyskinesia that you mentioned before? Is it somehow different in the phenomenology would it be treated differently or do we, again, just have not enough data because that's outside of the realm of schizophrenia treatment? Yeah, I think we have uh, we have a lack of data. I guess if I did see a person with persistent dyskinesia resulting from one of these other medications, you know, after I discontinued the drug and waited a period of time, if it was still present, then I probably would try to treat it with a with a VMAT2 uh, drug, for example. But as you say, we, we really do not have a lot of good data. As far as the pathophysiology, hard to say, but I would bet that, it's, that there's some overlap and that we're also talking about some genetic vulnerability. Yeah, and you mentioned that metoclopramide might have, again, the second best data that it can induce tardive dyskinesia. And here, similar treatment would be most likely indicated as for antipsychotic-related tardive dyskinesia. But let's talk about that kind of treatment. So you have a patient who comes through the door, he's on or she's on an antipsychotic. You manage uh, or you monitor them with hopefully the aims and maybe a caregiver is telling you, oh, my, my loved one has these movements, what's that about? What are your next steps in the treatment um, in terms of dose adjustment, switching, stopping, and ultimately VMAT2 inhibitor? How would you go about this? Well, I think the first thing is to is to really validate the diagnosis to, to make sure that it is tardive dyskinesia to rule out other possible causes of tardive dyskinesia, of which you know, of which there are many, and ranging from stroke and cerebral palsy to Wilson's disease and Huntington's disease and Tourette's and Parkinsonism, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the first step is a differential diagnosis. And if we're certain that the diagnosis is tardive dyskinesia, then we want to try to eliminate the offending agent, if not to reduce the dose as, as much as possible. And I would probably wait a little bit of time before starting a, a new medicine to, to make sure that the tardive dyskinesia is not going to remit by itself. But all of that said, then I would consider using, you know, one of the newer uh, medicines. There are two VMAT2 inhibitors that have been approved, uh, dutetrabenazine and valbenazine, several years ago. So there's been a fair amount of experience with them. They both 
underwent, uh, I think, very well-designed and carefully conducted clinical trials so that the data, I thought, were very impressive. And obviously, the Food and Drug Administration agreed with that as well. These drugs are not curative. I mean, so patients do need to continue taking them uh, by and large. And so in, in many cases, if they do stop the drug, the movements will come back to some extent. There'll be some potential improvement, but they don't necessarily cure the movement disorder entirely. Thank you for that. So the data that were collected on valbenazine and dutetrabenazine included not only schizophrenia, but also mood disorder patients, which I think is relevant, depression, bipolar disorder. Most were on an antipsychotic. Some were even off an antipsychotic and still had these movements. So it's quite generalizable in terms of that there is a benefit. With EMAT2 inhibitor, when they're stopped, basically the symptoms reemerge or getting close to baseline again which is, I think, also important, maybe with an exception of patients where you could stop the antipsychotic, and that's not fully clear. So, but we're adding a VMAT2 inhibitor, which basically reduces the packaging of dopamine and other biogenic amines in the presynaptic vesicles, and there's less than release of dopamine, which seems to be the mechanism. But we're adding this to an antipsychotic. Is that safe? Do you need to do anything to the antipsychotic, change the dose? What what are the side effects? Is Is it something that is well tolerated? It is well tolerated. It does appear to be safe. So certainly uh, adding it to the existing antipsychotic, if that is indicated, is appropriate. And I think that's one of the advantages of these medications, that they don't cause any exacerbation of the underlying condition, et cetera, et cetera. But I do want to emphasize a point that you made a moment ago, is that a lot of the, particularly the second generation antipsychotic drugs are used in other conditions besides schizophrenia. And although the second-generation medications are less likely to cause TD, they still do. And what we're seeing sometimes are patients with affective disorders, depression, bipolar disorder, developing tardodyskinesia, and in some cases, you know, quite severe tardodyskinesia. So we have to ask ourselves, is there something we can do to prevent that? And I think part of it is reminding ourselves clinically that these drugs do have risk. They certainly may be lower than the first-generation drugs, but it's an important decision whether or not to use an antipsychotic medication in a patient who does not have a psychotic disorder. And that, again, means examination on a consistent basis. And we talk about using an instrument like the abnormal involuntary movement scale, which has been around for a long time. And some clinics and hospitals actually have guidelines that suggest, you know, it should be done every six months or 12 months, which is good. I think that's important. But I think we should be looking at our patient every time we see him or her. You know, it just it doesn't take that long to observe someone and and, and just keep an eye out for early signs of abnormal involuntary movements. Thank you so much, Dr. Kang, for this very rich discussion that I hope is helpful to our audience. But before we close out, can you give the audience some clinical pearls? What are they to take away from today's discussion? Yeah, so I would emphasize the importance of an appropriate diagnosis and that when we choose these medications, I think I think some clinicians have been lulled into a false sense of security that Antipsychotic medications work in almost everything, whether it's the bipolar disorder, depression, schizophrenia, other psychotic disorders, et cetera. And I think we have, we still have to be careful with these drugs. They do have side effects. Tardodyskinesia is one of the more potentially serious side effects. So that means thoughtfulness about prescribing the drugs and then consistent examination of the patient going forward. Fortunately, we knew, we now do have treatments for tardodyskinesia, which were lacking up until a few years ago. 
And so that's the good news, but that should not lull us into a false sense of security. And most likely you would subscribe to also the fact that we need to educate patients ahead of the treatment that this is a potential risk, document this, document that there were no such symptoms to begin with and that they agreed with that and that there were other options for treatments that were discussed so that there's also a medical legal aspect obviously but also with the education of the patient and caregivers we have another set of eyes that actually can alert us when these movements start to emerge so that we can intervene early if possible yes that's critically important absolutely so well thanks very much for that conversation dr kane and thank you all for listening we hope you found this discussion informative for your clinical practice for more information on the series, please visit the show notes. Thank you very much and stay healthy and safe.